going to start off this morning with a question. It's an obvious question, I think, and it's this. Do you ever doubt? Maybe it's, you know, something mundane is whether the ride at some shabby fly-by-night carnival will actually hold together and uh, give you a fun time and be safe. Or, you know, a little bit more, will the plane actually get you where you're going? But then what about whether you can do something or not? Do you have enough experience? Are you skilled enough? Do you have enough time or energy or resources? Maybe you doubt whether anyone will actually take you seriously and listen to you and or your ideas. Do you doubt if what someone says to you is true or not? Or that they can do what they've promised to do? Maybe digging a little deeper here, do you sometimes doubt whether you're loved and cared for? That you're appreciated? That you're valued? That you are made in the image of God? Now, if yes to these, join the club. We've all doubted many things. We lack confidence at times. You know, on a, one level, I, I lack a lot of confidence in our government leaders that they have our best interests in mind. And personally, though, I've also wrestled with various doubts about my abilities and my worth too much in my life. And I'm positive, I don't actually doubt this, I'm positive that at various times we all lack confidence in some area or another. And John has been concerned about believers and their confidence in one particular venue. He longs for his readers, specifically those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he longs for them to have confident assurance in their relationship with the Lord. And we're going to see that very explicitly this morning. Part of that confidence expresses itself in the assurance of eternal life, which is very much needed, but also in the confidence that we have a personal God who deeply cares for his people and wants us to go to him in prayer. This morning, we may only be looking at a few verses, but the weight and message they bring to us is very much worth our time. So if you have your Bible, uh, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully there's one on the row. Um, and if, you don't, if it's just that you don't want to have one here today, uh, feel free to use that. If you don't have one at all, feel free to take that home as a gift from us. Uh, but 1 John 5... Verses 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we, we need your work in our lives this morning to help us to see the, the breadth and the depth of your love and your grace and your goodness and, and what you've called us to. Lord, many of us come in distracted, distraught, 
Some couldn't even make it today because of illness or other issues. And so for those of us who are here, those of us who are, are in earshot of, of this this morning, Lord, would you enlighten our eyes by your Spirit, work in us. Would you fill me with your Spirit to proclaim your word and your truth boldly and clearly and lovingly. Lord, work in us for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. So look again at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. There it is. We've looked at so much of 1 John, and here is John's purpose for this letter. His desire has been that his readers, and, and again, it's specifically those who believe in the name of the Son of God, would know that they have eternal life. And this verse forms, in some ways, a bookend with chapter 1, verse 4, that says, where John wrote, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. For John and his companions, seeing the believers assured, uh, that's essential to the completion of their joy. And and all that he has written, everything that he's written from from verse 4, really from verse 1 on, has served to, to work towards their assurance For those who believe in the name of the Son of God, their assurance that they have eternal life. Now, throughout John's writings, though, as a whole, this idea of life and and knowing is is quite prominent. In fact, looking at the end of John's gospel, he wrote these words, very similar to what he wrote here. I'll start in verse 30 of of chapter 20 of, of the gospel of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now see, the gospel was written for a purpose as well. Its purpose was more evangelistic, to to get the gospel, the message of Christ out there. It was written so that those who read that might believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, they would receive life. John's letter, however, was written for believers. His desire was not that, that they would initially believe and receive. Now, obviously, if, if somebody read it and believed and received initially, that's great. But his, his purpose was that they would know that they have received and therefore be assured of eternal life. Again, John is concerned about eternal life. And, and, and that eternal life, as, as the Gospel of John says in 17.3, the essence of that is knowing Christ Jesus. This is eternal life, knowing Jesus. Now, to push this again, John writes very pointedly, doesn't he? He says, to those who believe, to you who believe. This assurance is not carte blanche. It's not given to everyone. It's actually discriminatory. It's for those who believe in Jesus. All that he is and claim to be, that he is the Son of God. It is that those who believe would know, would know, not guess, not conjecture, not be partially persuaded, but know that they have eternal life. This knowing isn't so much focused on um, facts, so to speak, on knowledge in that sense, as much as it is talking about assurance. Being assured, having that, that, that assured knowledge, it means that they would possess that now, have a present certainty of the life that they have 
in Christ. You see, John knew that there was false teaching all around, and that false teaching was apt to disturb. It was apt to disturb the conscience, the mind, the soul. It was apt to to, to cause problems. And that's why he spent so much time going through what it looks like, what what a true believer looks like, one that that loves and obeys and and keeps his commandments, loves God, loves fellow believers. He He gave us criteria by which to test ourselves because his desire is that we would be sure and that we would also not only be sure in ourselves, but be sure who to follow and who not to because there are many who claim Christ who don't exhibit him at all. Charles Spurgeon addressed it this way, wrote, every person who believes in the name of the Son of God has eternal life. We may not doubt this. It is not a matter of inference and deduction, but a matter of revelation from God. We are not to form an opinion about it, but to believe it. For the Lord has said it. It is right for a child of God to know that God is his Father and never to have a question in his heart as to his sonship. It is right for a soul that is married to Christ to know the sweet love of the bridegroom and never to permit a cloud of suspicion to come between himself and the full enjoyment of Christ's love. Folks, John wants us to be assured. He says, you who believe, know that you have eternal life. This is not arrogance, okay? This is faith and trust. Humble certainty is not an oxymoron, okay? Humble certainty is not an oxymoron. John Stott put it clearly as well. If God's revealed purpose is not only that we should hear, believe and live, but also that we should know, presumptuousness lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. I don't want us to be presumptuous, but it is not presumptuous for those who believe in Christ, who know, who who are seeking him to say, I know that I have eternal life. I'm sure, not because of me, it's not, it's not the first person, it's the third person, because He has done this for me. Because Christ has worked. Because Christ has died on the cross. He, he rose from the dead for my justification. God's Word, His testimony, gives us assurance. And it calls us to have confidence in that assurance. And, and, and John moves further, though, beyond this, this assurance of eternal life into confidence in our intimacy and trust in the Lord that will lead us to go to Him boldly in prayer. So look at verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So first thing, if you notice the and, the and tells us this is a continuation. John is not taking a new topic here. He's continuing in this confident assurance realm, but his focus is on prayer. And we're going to see more next week as we look into verses 16 and 17, how this will lead into those verses. But right now he's talking about this confidence in prayer, just kind of more in general. And John writes here that we know that we have confidence toward him. 
Now, that phrase toward him, it, it doesn't mean something like, I'm looking towards him. It, it's not a directional thing. Toward him um, could, could actually almost be translated as in his presence, in the presence of God. We have confidence in the presence of God. And, and I'm going to give a number of other scriptures today through this, through this message to help reinforce what John is saying here. So Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because of, of Christ, we stand. We stand in His presence because of Christ. Ephesians 3, 11 to 12, this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, so in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So believers have confidence. We, at least we, we ought to. We, we, we have the basis of confidence. And so he calls us to that. We have standing before the Lord. We have newfound freedom, all because we are united to Christ, because we are in Christ. It is by that reality that we approach the Father and enter his presence. We, we, we approach him by a mediator, through a mediator, Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sins have been dealt with in him. This is one of the massive and, and I think sometimes overlooked benefits of adoption. We just read not, not too long ago in the service, the Shorter Catechism, question 34, but here it is again. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, His grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We are taken from children of wrath to be children of God, and we have all the rights and the privileges of a son of God. That is beautiful. We have standing with him. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We can, we can call out to him as God, as our Father, our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. One more, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then with confidence... With confidence, what? Draw near to the throne of grace. I read all these texts to emphasize how clear Scripture is in this. It's not just John. Okay? It, is, it is the Word of God. Scripture is clear. Believers have confidence because of Christ. And, and John has actually already written about confidence. Much of his, his emphasis has been uh, two, chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Here, that, that confidence is, is for the return of Christ, that we won't shrink in shame, that, that knowing him, uh, that, that we've known him and we abide in him, we don't have to fear that time. We have confidence. 
But that's not the only place our confidence lies. We also have confidence, as he talks about today, and he also wrote about in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, in our approach to God. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So here, the confidence is with God in prayer. And, and, and here it is in, in chapter 3. Uh, it flows from keeping God's commandments. It flows from keeping those commands. In our text today, in, cha- in verse 14, it says that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And these bases, bases for confidence, keeping God's commandments and asking according to His will, they actually give us a clue, though, um, kind of on another level in, in some ways as to um, some of the purpose and benefit of prayer. John Stott again wrote this. He said, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God. So prayer is not a time of us imposing our will upon God or for bending His will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to His. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. Prayer, as we draw near to God in prayer, part of it is it's conforming us to Christ. We're submitting to Him. We're submitting our will to the Father's and saying, not my will, but yours be done. So let's look again at our text, okay? Verse 14. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. That's a pretty heavy text in a lot of ways. It is. Many of us who read this are immediately drawn to that according to his will part, aren't we? We're immediately drawn like, okay, according to his will. That's that's what I got to do. And wonder, we're like, okay, what is God's will that I might ask for it? But in some ways, that's not actually the point. And that's part of it. But it's not the the big point. But by going right there, right away, by us tending to go, okay, what is it that I can ask according to his will? I think it it points to something. And I think it points to the fact that we have a hard time with this text. It is difficult to read this text and to sit in it, to think about it. Because texts like this sound a bit pie in the sky. Or maybe even, should I just rub the genie in the bottle kind of thing? Whatever we ask, he hears us and we have it. Because one, we've probably heard really bad teaching on it. Because if you've turned on the TV and watched somebody, it's, it's possible, and they've addressed this, it's highly possible it's not been great. You see, John, John isn't presenting a hypothetical. This is stated in the indicative. We know. We know that he hears us. And that, that hears us has this connotation of God both understanding the request and answering it. 
And that seems so extravagant. It seems so out there. Again, almost hard to believe, far-fetched. We're, we're uncomfortable with it. We have the request we ask for? Really? Yeah. But let's go further. I'm going to make us a little more uncomfortable. Listen to things that Jesus said during his earthly ministry. John 14, verses 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. How about John 15, verses 7 and 16? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 16, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Let's keep going. John 16, verses 23 and 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And I'm, I'm not even going to quote Matthew 21, 22 or Mark eleven twenty four. What do you do with these? What what, what do we do with these? I'll say I've had difficulty with them over the years. I read them. I I love them in a way, but then I'm like, I, I I don't know all the time. That's okay. Paul Miller wrote a great book a number of years ago that I would encourage anybody to get. It's called A Praying Life. Just A Praying Life. And in it, he talks about this very thing. And he writes about um, having given, he, he goes around and, and he'll give seminars on prayer just to help encourage us in our prayer lives. And he asks people to react honestly to words like these. Sitting in a seminar going, okay, tell me, tell me what you think. And what he got was people questioning is Jesus exaggerating? Is this just hyperbole? Or, or wondering what happens if they pray like this, but it doesn't actually work out. Did they fail? And is their faith actually real? Others, it just wasn't their experience in prayer. Some were depressed because they saw the connotation as, as we read through those, those verses in John of if you abide in me, this connection of a, abiding in Christ. So they concluded, well, Jesus has, my prayers haven't been answered, so I'm not abiding. You know, in some ways, I guess when I read that, it's good to know we're not alone, isn't it? We all have some of these thoughts. But then the question still remains, so how do we approach this text? What do we do with it? And Miller suggests that Jesus' brother has a good answer for us. So James, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. James writes this, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, Miller uh, put together a diagram uh, chart uh, up there. You can see it up there where he says we can easily fall off either cliff. So good asking is that down the middle and we could fall off either cliff um, of either not asking or asking selfishly. 
Okay? And the corrective is to see how Jesus didn't fall off in his prayers, in his relationship with the Father, particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark, 11, or Mark 14, verse 36. Jesus is in the Garden. This is before, um, he's fully bet- before he's betrayed in the Garden. So Mark 14 says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus clearly avoided the not asking part, didn't he? He didn't fall off the cliff of not asking. But often, we do. We do. We just, maybe, maybe we just give in and, and, and aren't actually real with God. We don't listen to, to something like Psalm 62.8 that says, Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. We don't actually come before him as he's called us to. Maybe we just get, you know, maybe we just get, we're too busy to pray. So we just don't. Jesus avoided that. A time when the cross is looming. He says, my father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. But he also, at the same time, avoided the asking selfishly. Because the very next words out of his mouth were, yet not what I will, but what you will. And Miller wrote this. He said, Jesus is real about his feelings, but they don't control him. Nor does he try to control God with them. He doesn't use his ability to communicate with his father as a, as a means of doing his own will. He submits to the story that his father is weaving. So back to our text. How does this help? Well, John is certainly encouraging us away from not asking, isn't he? (laughs) He's definitely saying, don't fall off that cliff. He's encouraging us to pray. That's something we cannot miss. John is saying, you have confidence to pray. You have confidence to go before the Father, before the creator of the universe, the sovereign king of all. You can go before him as one in Christ. Not only though can you, but you ought to. He wants you to come to him. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. He delights in our coming to him. So part of what he is saying, I think, what John is saying in our text is this. It's really simple. Ask. You got that? Do I need to spell it? A-S-K. Ask. Pray. Go to him. But he's also implicitly telling us, don't ask selfishly. Right? Right? we ask anything according to his will. We are to seek the things of God, to know the will of God. Not his, his, his secret or hidden will, but his revealed will. He, uh, we, we find that in Scripture. We find that as we seek to get to know our God through his gift of Scripture to us. This word of God is living and active, and by the work of the Spirit, he leads us into all truth. And it's not merely desiring to know God's will, as we've seen throughout 1 John, it's not just that desiring to know it, but it's the desire and the willingness to do it. To love God, to obey His commandments, to love others. 
part of our confidence in eternal life and in going to God in prayer is boosted by our loving God, loving others, and keeping His commandments, by our abiding in Christ. So listen again to the text. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. We know. We know that He hears us. And that we have the request that we, when we ask according to His will, that is great encouragement for us. But there's also, folks, it doesn't mean the answer is going to come right away. It doesn't mean that you know the answer perfectly. You know, the Spirit intercedes for us with words and, and groans that, because sometimes we don't know what to ask, but we pray. And we seek His will, and we know that, that He hears us and, and answers in that. But again, it doesn't come right away. God is at work. And I think of someone in our church in particular, Carol McGee. Many of you know Carol. She prayed, and so did many others, for years. Carol prayed for probably more than close to 30 years for her husband. For him to come to know Christ. And the answer clearly did not come right away. That's 30 years of praying. And there was perseverance in that prayer and and conformity to God's will and and her dependence on the Lord and and growing in trust uh, when, when things at times might have appeared hopeless, but yet continuing to pray and continuing to ask others to come alongside her and pray with her. And not too long ago, the beginning of October of last year, the Lord answered those prayers. Yeah, I'm not saying that the Lord's going to answer every prayer for salvation, but I know that it's a great prayer to pray. The Lord calls people to repentance. You know, I don't know, and nor do you, the inner workings of the divine will, but I do know He calls us to pray and to proclaim the gospel. So we can boldly pray, all the while surrendering to the sovereign will of God. Praying with confidence, Lord, hear me as I pray for the salvation of this loved one. Or hear me as I pray that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would know what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Praying the prayers that we see in Scripture praying those for one another. I believe you can have confidence that he hears those prayers. He may not answer it today or tomorrow or the next year or the next 29 years. But we can have confidence because he is the God of hope and mercy and love and grace And He's shown us so much in Christ. And and, and we we know that He's always and only going to do what is for our good. Now, I I honestly have no idea if this all is going to help you in your prayer life. And in your confidence before the Lord. I hope that it does. Working on this and, and wrestling through this text has encouraged me. It's challenged me even as to what I am praying. And it's challenged me and convicted me on those days that maybe I woke up late and I just get going and 
comes to the end of the day, and I'm like, I, I might have said a few little prayers, but I barely prayed today. It doesn't exhibit a whole lot of confidence in my God. It exhibits a lot of confidence in myself. Folks, let's lay out our request before the Father. Let's have confidence that our prayer does not fall on deaf ears. I was specifically challenged by these words from John Calvin. Let us then bear in mind this declaration of the Apostle, that calling on God is the chief trial of our faith, and that God is not rightly nor in faith called upon except we be fully persuaded that our prayers will not be in vain. You're not simply babbling. Your prayers are not in vain as you go to the Lord. He is, I will say, at the least, He's conforming you to His will and to His character as you seek His face in Scripture and you pray. So, folks, we can have and we ought to and we do have confident assurance that we who believe have life and that we who believe can come before Him in boldness in prayer with confidence that He hears us when we ask in accordance with His will. And we can be greater assured and grow in that confidence through His Scriptures, through His Word. And I think our problem often is, well, maybe it's twofold. Maybe we don't know this. We don't know His words. And when we do... Maybe we just don't trust them. But my corrective so often in that is, Lord, I'm trusting you for my eternity. I trust you that Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He works for us. He is a God who works for His people. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. So let's rest assured in His goodness. Let's approach the throne of grace with confidence. John wants us to be different. John wants us not to be self-reliant but Christ-reliant. Jesus showed us how to do it. And even more, He's the reason we can do it. It's in Him that we can go to the Father. As we go to the Father, we rest assured in Christ. Because it's in Christ that we have the certainty of the promise. And we see that certainty. So let's go to Him. Let's be confident in what He has given us in eternal life in Christ, and let's go with confidence to Him in prayer. And so let's pray now. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to read. Sometimes it's hard to comprehend and grasp. But we trust You. We love You. Grow our trust. Help our unbelief. Help us to come to you in prayer. Help us to rest in Christ. 
and to follow in the footsteps of our Savior who did not fall off either cliff, didn't fall to not asking, and didn't fall to asking selfishly, but asked and trusted. Lord, let us seek your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.